I'm Arlen Hamilton, and this is Your First Million. I'm a venture capitalist. I started my fund Backstage Capital from the ground up while I was on food stamps. I have now invested in more than 100 companies led by women, people of color, and LGBT founders. After having raised more than $10 million, people often ask me how I did it. I created this podcast so I could tell you my story and so that together we could go on a journey and speak with some of the most successful people in the world from all backgrounds and walks of life to learn how they got their first million. And who knows, maybe I'll reach my first million in personal capital while I'm recording this series. There's only one way to find out. Let's go. Hi everyone, welcome back to your first million. This is Arlen. It's a new week. Hey, we're starting off the new week. Let's have some energy. I know it is, uh, man, it's a slog. (laughs) Going into the holiday season, everything's a little different, but let's do this and let's be really, really, really mindful of the people around us um, and wear our masks when we're out and try not to congregate, even though we're going to miss I mean, I know I'm going to miss being with my family this year, and my wife is going to miss being with her family in Germany this year. Um, I thought about it. I thought about doing like a 25-hour drive by myself to go see my mom from a distance. But in the end, everybody agreed it was just too dangerous for everyone involved. You know, you're going to have to interact with people on uh, in gas stations on the way there. You're going to have to do this, that, and the other. And it was just too dangerous. And so... I, I'm I'm not going to yell at you. I've been yelling at people on Twitter and Instagram for the past couple of weeks about this, cursing y'all out and truly cursing y'all out. I'm not going to do that this time. Right? What I'm going to do right now is tell you what, how I think about it. And the way I think about it is it, to me, it is worth as hard as it is. And it pulls at every fiber of me, how difficult this is. I haven't seen my mom or my brother uh, who are the closest people to me besides my wife since February. But it's worth it to me to miss this Thanksgiving or miss, well, not even Thanksgiving because I don't really celebrate that, but to miss this holiday season, November, December, with them so that I can have multiple seasons with them in the future. If it, if I were to bring COVID to my mother's doorstep at 71 and embrace her and be excited to see her and have that moment with her and then turn right back around and have left her with COVID because I decided I I need to see her. It will, it would, it would kill me, you know, and it's just not worth it. I want to see 10, 20, 30 more uh, holiday seasons with my mother. And I said 10, I'm gonna start that at 20, 30, 40 more holiday seasons with my mother. Okay. That's how I think about it. So, you know, plans were made to be broken. Flights can be canceled. Car rides can be canceled. I'm just saying, these these nurses, these doctors, these hospital workers are overwhelmed in almost every city in the country and definitely in every state in the country, even if it hasn't come to your doorstep yet. They're overwhelmed. There is no doubt at this point 
that congregating, whether it's for church or for a funeral, unfortunately, or for at the grocery store or for protesting even, congregating causes more cases. Doing things indoors is even worse. Doing things without masks, doing things that are unnecessary. And in my view, protesting is necessary and it's outdoors and there's masks <laughs> when it when it comes from the from the democratic liberal side i'm not going to get too into politics i mean i i don't mind politics but what i'm saying is my my point here i'm just doing all those qualifiers cuz i know some of y'all just come at me no matter what i say but i'm trying to reach the people i'm trying to reach you all i'm trying to reach you all and say it sucks nobody wants this nobody likes being stuck and not having choices but there's there's worse. I mean, we're not at war right now with each other. We're not at war with other people right now. The worst that we're being asked to do is wear a mask and sit our ass home. And many of us can't even do that. And that's sad. That's sad. Now, I will also say that my uh, opinions and my thoughts do not represent my guests' thoughts or opinions necessarily. I don't know. You'd have to ask her, but I'm going to get off the high horse. Hopefully some of y'all heard me. Hopefully some of y'all heard me, um, uh, but I'll get off that high horse because I'm really, 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 really excited about this episode and this interview with Katrina Lake. Katrina Lake was the youngest woman to take her company public. To, I have an IPO for her company, Stitch Fix, which is still out there kicking butt, multi-billion dollar company. She was in her 30s when she did it, and she had her baby with her. She had her child with her when she did when she rang this bell. This is a this is a inter- an interview that is going to um, touch and feel. It's gonna it's gonna ignite so many of you. It's going to ignite you. This is for the mothers out there. This is for the fathers out there. This is for uh, the people who feel like maybe they've. They don't have another chance at doing something. This is for the people who have been told what, what they're working on is not valuable. Because as you'll see, Katrina had very, very few people in the beginning believe in what she was doing. They wrote it off because it was a, a fashion c- company, quote unquote. They didn't understand she had all kinds of stuff up her sleeve. So you're going to love this one. Uh, as always, this is a little COVID kind of recording, so it's on Zoom. It's not the best recording in the world, um, but we're doing what we can, and the content is what matters. So jump in it, jump on it, um, you know, buckle up, <laughs> get the notebook out. As I always say, get the notebook out. You're going to want to take notes on this one and get ready. And I want to thank Katrina uh, for being my guest and I want to say happy holidays to everybody. I'm still going to cuss y'all out. That's not going to stop. But I'm cussing myself out at the same time. Every time I think about doing so, I'm like, no, I'm going to sit your ass down. <laughs> That's my new song. Sit your ass down. I'm going to get it right. All right, y'all. Hello, Katrina. Hello. Hi, Arlen. How are you doing today? I'm great. 
It's been okay. a day, but yeah, Are, these, it's a lot of days that roll into date, <laughs> like roll into <laughs> year, especially this year. That's so true. Yeah, end of the year. It's uh, I found myself. Um, I'm not going to make any assumptions, but I found myself very, very, um, still ener- more energized than I have been in a while because of of our our election. Yeah, it's been, um, I mean, I really do. I think there's, you know, I think just, I don't know, seeing Kamala, like seeing, I think seeing everything that we saw in, um, in Georgia, like, I mean, I, I feel like there's so many reasons to just like believe in change and believe, um, believe in optimism. And, um, I don't know, I feel like I, um, I don't think I realized that like I had been feeling, as negatively as I had, I feel a little bit lighter this week. Yes. And it's almost like, like I've heard that and I felt that by so many people who didn't just realize, and I didn't realize either. And it's almost like the boogeyman is gone. You know, it's like that (laughs) sort of, there's, there's the actual fear and then there's an additional sort of psychological fear or weight I think is there. Um, that is that is lifted in a way so it does the optimism you're right about that that's my alarm going off yeah (laughs) Um, (laughs) and glad it interrupted me and not you um and and so there's just there's something different in the air um but you know we're all still human so things I I had a a weird uh event happen on a couple of days ago I was speaking at an event and all of a sudden I I, I uh, had to had to drop out um, and it was it was um, I talked a little bit about it on Twitter so I won't go into it here but it was a little it was a little scary because it was, it was you know it was you kind of it, it showed me how quickly things can can change and how it helped me take stock again which I think was really good Are you okay I'm sorry to hear that yeah yeah I'll I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more offline um, but but I did anybody who's hearing this and it's for the first time um, you can go to my Twitter or my Instagram and and get my my public statement as it were as if I'm mm-hmm. the Queen of England <laughs> it, it really does help you take stock of things and speaking of taking stock I don't want to be too corny but <laughs> You, uh, (laughs) (laughs) you, I mean, it's kind of, it's just so impressive. I'm sure you've just heard this so much, but it's so impressive the work that you've done. I can imagine it's been incredible amounts of pressure as well. Can you talk a little bit about your company and about its recent, in the last few years, um, what has put it on the map? Yeah, so I started Stitch Fix, um, I mean, almost 10 years ago now, which makes me feel old. Um, but when I and when I started it, I really started it with this belief that there was a better way to shop, that technology was totally underserving this huge market in apparel that like people spend a lot of money on, people really care about, like it really defines who people are. And yet this problem of like, how do I find jeans that fit me is like, it's like still a really challenging problem. And so it was one that I really felt like could be better solved with technology. And so that was, that was really kind of how I started the journey. Um, And, you know, for the first, I mean, really for most of our, most of Stitch Fix, um, that journey has been defined by kind of what people know about Stitch Fix you know, today, which is the people signing up, letting us know about who they are, what they're looking for, and us and um, using stylus with a combination of data science and algorithms. Um, 
sending them a fix to try on in the comfort of their own home, be able to shop in the comfort of their own home. These are all things that are great, of course, in a work from home environment and in this kind of current state. Um, and what that allowed us to do over the last 10 years is, you know, we're now, we've now sold $6 billion of clothes sight unseen. Um, we went public um, just, I guess now, Three years ago, um, and um, and you know the business has grown um, phenomenally over that time period. And so you know I think there are a few things that were really unlocks of it. Of I think one, you know we were in a very underestimated space with an underestimated founder. Um, you know, we were in women's, we started out in women's clothes. Now we do men's and kids clothes as well. But, you know, there weren't a lot of VCs who were super excited about the idea of disrupting this industry because they weren't deeply passionate about this industry. Um, and then of course myself, I, when, um, you know, when Stitch Fix went public, um, I, I was the youngest female founder CEO to take a company public at that point. Um, I was, I mean, how old am I? now I think I'm like 37 so I was maybe 34 is that right and so you know and that's um and that's something that I, I mean I guess I'm proud of but I actually also feel ashamed that I was the for I was the youngest to do that and knowing that there are so many people that I that in years before me that probably were super capable and were never given Given the um, never given the chance and never given the privilege to to have a shot like that, and so you know I think that there is um, now I'm kind of wandering all over the place, but you know taking the company public, seeing this accelerated growth path, like there's a ton to be excited about now with um, people really changing their behavior in really radical ways and people really being open to new ways of shopping, and so you know we we have we have a lot to be excited about. We still have a lot to prove, but um, but you know definitely wasn't smooth sailing the whole way. Well, we'll definitely be able to get into that. And I appreciate that foundation. I mean, all of that you said I can pull from, um, it, it's almost like you all, I mean, you definitely launched a, a category of, a, and a way and a behavior of how people purchase clothing online. Um, when did you really tap into that? When did you know that that was going to be the secret sauce to things? Because was it ever at a time you know, you, you set out, I want to start a, a clothing company. Did, when was that moment, if you can remember? The moment really, I mean, the idea that like, recommendations had to be at the center of this business was really early. I mean, I, you know, I'm five foot two and I, um, there's a lot of beautiful clothes on this planet that like will just never work for me because I'm five foot two. And so, you know, I think being able to, I, like I used to look online at clothes and wish I could look, like I wish I could click a filter that is like, okay, things that actually would work on me and like you know this notion of just like the recommendations and understanding people and garments and what's going to work for who like that had to be at the center of the model and that and that was really kind of you know really central to stitch fix the like how of that of like how do we integrate stylists and data science and how do we get to like that point where the recommendations are really really good like that was definitely a journey and then now it's really you know this notion of like we're going to ship Close directly to your home like that was kind of the first version of this journey and now we're actually expanding out and you know being able to being able to show amazing recommendations that doesn't just to be just just have to be in a box in your home like that also can be ways that you can engage in our app you can also view the recommendations and buy from our app and so you know 
we're starting to expand this notion of what being really good at recommendations, which was really our core capability, looks like from the consumer side. Um, and I think, you know, especially now, it's a very exciting way to be expanding our business because, you know, while there are some people that were willing to hand over the reins and say, like, you know, send me things, I'll try on whatever. Um, and that's awesome. And that was a big, you know, that is a big market and continues to grow. But being able to allow people to shop directly through the recommendations, um, that actually opens up a lot more market opportunity for us because there are people who want to have more say in what they're getting. There are people who, um, you know, who have a strong perspective, who want to choose like, this is what I want and this is what I don't. And so, mm -hmm. um, so it's been, um, you know, it's been a great journey and one that's, um, it's, it's been exciting to be able to feel like we have so many horizons and so many um, kind of new ways really to look at growing our business over the last 10 years. And do you feel, you sound like you feel really energized, <clears throat> pardon me, really energized by this work still. Do you, is that how you feel? For sure. It, I yeah. mean, it, it's crazy that like, it is crazy to feel, um, and Ar I mean, Arlen, your career also has had so many layers to it. And so I, I don't know if you feel the same way, but like, you'd think that like 10 years into something, like you might lose energy or like, get, you know, like you think all these things and like, and honestly, like, you know, I, I think I'm more optimistic now about our business than like I ever have been. And I feel like there's so much to be excited about right now. I think it's super exciting. Of course, we'll come with its challenges. Um, you know, it doesn't get any easier, I think, like the 10th year in. Um, but, you know, it is like, I think there's, um, there's just so much opportunity. And I think in particular at this moment in time, like it's kind of an entrepreneur's dream. Like it's, it's hard to be you know, it's hard to, it's like a weird dichotomy. I feel like the world is such a challenging place right now. And, um, and there are so many, like, you know, it's hard to read the news. Like there's just, you know, there's a lot that, um, it, there's a lot of reasons to kind of feel pessimistic in the short term, but from an entrepreneur's perspective, like all of this disruption, all of this change, all of these like people, kind of like looking for, you know, being dissatisfied. Like when you're dissatisfied, it means that you want something better and you want something new. And that's a super exciting mentality for like, everybody to be in right now you know entrepreneurs like that's an entrepreneur's dream like to be able to reimagine like okay people are dissatisfied right now like what's the new thing that people are actually really going to love and so you know i think there actually is like as as much as it's a challenging you know last nine months that we've been in there's so much of it that's actually exciting and i think is actually going to create a petri just dish of kind of innovation and change and um and new ways of thinking but it's so it's so astute because so many people who listen to this podcast, I know, including myself, you know, we've gone through this all together of what happens next and 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 how do we how even through all of the pain, how do we come out of the ashes and and find joy and kind of find energy um, to look forward to? And that's it. It is in that. Uh, what an entrepreneur is sort of made of that that innovation and that intuition and and creativity that's when you kind of really it's almost like we're in there's a there's a blank canvas almost or at least tools for us to to use um your your early in like time trying to get investors was it you said that it was you were underestimated, which of course we love that word over over in backstage land and in my land, you know. Um, <laughs> was it like when you IPO'd? 
Were there any early investors who you were just so thrilled to see do well with you? So, I mean, our, you know, my, our journey in fundraising was, was super challenging and, um, and, you know, it is part of what I love what you and backstage are doing because like there are, um, there are so many great businesses out there that are overlooked and underfunded and, um, and I do think, you know, I do think at least more recently, there's probably a little bit more attention in some of these spaces, but like at the time, and, you know, gosh, this was 10 years ago, um, it was you know, there were very, most, the vast majority of venture investors were men. I think it was when I was raising money, it was something like 94% of venture mm -hmm. investors were men. Um, and, um, and, you know, I didn't have like a ton of like, you know, quote unquote, great experience to do this. Like I had basically never managed anybody before. Like, you know, I, I went to great schools and I was super lucky to have done that, but, you know, I didn't really have, you know, kind of meaningful experience to speak of. Um, and so the venture investors that, um, that, that like are on our cap table were basically the only ones that said yes, right? Like, I mean, I met with probably over 50 venture investors and um, and I was really lucky in the seed round to find um, a venture investor who's still on our board, Steve Anderson, who, I mean, you know, he believed in me and he, um, you know, he was he was really the one who, who like made this happen. He was the one who, you know, put a half million dollar check in my hands and, um, and kind of allowed us to get to the races. Um, and then, you know, in between him and Benchmark, it was really hard. I mean, it was really hard to find investors who were excited about this. It was really hard to, um, it was just really, really hard. Mm -hmm. And then by the time we got to Benchmark, I mean, I had I had made a mental shift, right? Like I had made a shift from, um, I spent a lot of time trying to convince people to be excited about this business. And, you know, I don't want to say I gave up, but I realized that like, I could channel that energy into making this a healthy business that was profitable, cash flow positive, standing on its own two feet so that I wouldn't be subject to like the preferences of venture investors or the whims of venture investors. And so that was really the path that I was on when, um, when Bill Gurley emailed me and, you know, I had kind of a short list of investors that I really, I really like would wish I could work with. And he was on that very short list. And, um, and so, you know, we, uh, after a few conversations, um, you know, he gave us a term sheet without even running a process. And, um, and, you know, that was, and I think just the chance to work with him was really super exciting. And so, you know, obviously I think he, he and Steve Anderson are two investors that really believed in me and really believed in the company and were really there for me and the company through good and bad times and like we had a lot of hard times along the way and you know they're they're actually both still on our board which um you know especially in steve's model who's an angel investor that's pretty unusual um but you know they're still here they still really believe that there's so much more future opportunity available to the business and that's why they're still part of the business and part of our board so um so, you know, I was really grateful and like, you know, I, I, I always felt like extra burden. I feel like knowing that, like, you know, I don't know, like you fear that like other people will say, I told you so if it didn't work out or other, you know, like you just worry of like, I, I had these irrational concerns about what others thought. And I felt, I felt a lot of pressure to make sure that this bet that they took would work out for them. Um, and, um, and I'm, you know, I feel really grateful. I felt grateful that they believed in me. I feel grateful for their continued support. And I'm glad that I was able to like make that worthwhile to them. Mm. 
And I would imagine I we've been talking. Um, I've been talking to some friends and family <clears throat> recently about pettiness, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, good and bad. I think there's some good petty. Uh, there had to be people on that list of 50 that you kind of laughed, you kind of giggled to yourself at least and said, you know, in 2017 said, yeah, who, who's laughing at this model now, right? <laughs> I mean, there was definitely, I mean, there was a journalist who once told me, he was like, I always ask investors, like who, what were the deals that they most regret missing on? And that, you know, Stitch Fix was the most often company that I heard. And you know, I don't, I had such mixed feelings. I mean, I, I guess I'm proud of that, but the flip side was like, I don't know. I felt kind of sad about that, that yeah. like so yeah. many people had missed it. And, um, and so many people look back and feel like it was a mistake, but it's, you know, there's just, I think, I don't know, like it just, I, I definitely had mixed feelings about it. And, um, and I do think the good news of it is like, you know, there is, you know, while I, I don't think we're quite at the point where like you know there's still like the diversity of vcs is still pathetic and you know i think they're still far um when you look at the founder population it's still not what we want it to be but the reality like some progress has been made like there's been progress made in the last five years in the last 10 years and um and you know of course we're all ambitious and we wish it was more progress but um but you know i'm it, it helps me to be optimistic like i do think like at, at a minimum you know when stitch fix went public like that incited the capitalists and these venture capitalists who like you know they're when and they're all super smart ambitious people right so they they want to sit down and think to themselves like how did i miss that what did i miss like what mm -hmm. can do better next time and mm -hmm. so you know that knowing that those conversations happened in these minds of vcs like that gives me hope yeah i hope it does stir some uh, definitely stir some fomo and that stirs action because it is a cautionary tale for themselves um they it it, it is surprising given the example of stitch fix and others that there's not more kind of uh people just pushing each other out the way to back <laughs> an early uh at the very least female funded company um and beyond but but i think i've seen a couple of them that i honestly i have like i i i think they're it's definitely not every deal but it like it makes me so proud when i hear these top tier vcs are all fighting over this deal and and it's a female founder and and um and an underrepresented female founder i've heard two of those cases and yeah. Um, recently, and um, and that really gives me hope. Like that did not happen in my time ten years ago. Yeah, I I, I understand that, and um, it's kind of like this. It's, it's definitely turning a corner because one of the probably the most second or third most frequently asked question I have is, or, or I get is like, do you think things are changing? Things are better, and I'm like, well, I don't think I could keep going if things had just stayed the same the last five five to ten years because. That would have just been really disheartening. Um, there's definitely movement. And this, if nothing else, this brings hope and it and it is serves as a great example for other female founders. And that's really what who's going to change things. And that's really who's going to um, make things happen. Just like you did. You made that happen for yourself. Did and of course I know that you you would probably credit the team and, and every and everybody else who was involved because there is no self-made person. But what was um what was that IPO process itself like? I, you know, if we can get a little nerdy about it, that'd be kind of cool. Because I I talked to <laughs> Teresa Tucker, 
a few years ago. And Therese Tucker, for everybody who doesn't know, uh, there's an episode on this podcast you can go back and find. She um, bootstrapped almost to the end, and then she got private equity funding, and then she um, IPO'd in a billion-dollar company called uh, Blackline. And she talked about that IPO process as a blur, almost as like a, uh, you know, she had a very kind of whimsical, interesting way of describing it. And then it was over and it was back to work. And, you know, you take, she said it was like going to your own uh, wedding, basically. (laughs) (laughs) What, what do you, what do you think of it? And what can you say that maybe people wouldn't necessarily know unless they've been in those rooms? Oh, it's a good, it's a good question. And I mean, all those things are right. Like it, it is a blur. There are elements of it that do feel a little bit like like a wedding and a celebration. And, um, and, you know, for our own experience, I mean, there's a ton of work that goes into, um, that goes into the process. And then it's interesting because you kind of have, I don't know, I feel like I've had this like over like idealistic, like, you know, perfect, perfect economics world kind of view of the world that, like, you know, that there are known values for things, and you can do a lot of work and predict things. And like, I mean, the IPO process to me was like a really good example of like, you know, the real world is just messier. Um, And, you know, there's a ton of work that goes into the IPO, you have an expectation around like, where is the stock going to trade that like you think is based in numbers and values and reality. And, and, you know, in our experience, like, you know, we were a little bit fortunate that like, I mean, I shouldn't say fortunate, but like, because we weren't able to raise a ton of money, like we didn't have a crazy price tag. Like, you know, we weren't a quote unquote unicorn. Like, you know, we had, we, we really had been, um, you know, we've, we'd raised less than $50 million and, you know, our, our last valuation prior to going public was something like 300 million or something in that range. And so, um, and so, you know, we had, there's a lot of ranges of outcomes where it was, you know, a great day for lots of people. Um, so that was something that was fortunate about ours, but like what was hard was like, you have all these, so the week, two weeks leading up to the IPO, you do this roadshow, you go and meet with investors all over the country. Um, and, you know, and in retrospect, like one of the things that's crazy is like, you know, we talk about the lack of diversity in the VC world. There's the same lack of diversity happens in the public markets world and the, and the public equities world. And so, you know, you're kind of, I had a little bit of flashbacks to like some of the conversations I had that I thought were in the days, you know, I thought were behind me of like these kind of challenging conversations with, um, you know, with a, with a, with groups of people that often don't resemble me. And, um, and so, you know, it was, it was definitely like a tough couple of weeks. And like, you do these back-to-back meetings that are like 45 minutes with a group of people. And you're kind of like, okay, well, it's great to meet you. They ask a bunch of questions about your business. And then 45 minutes later, you're hoping that, you know, they tell the investment bank like, oh yeah, I want to buy a hundred million dollars of stock in that company or something. Right. And so mm. like, it was just like, you know, a lot of these people, I mean, almost all of these people I had never met before, you're trying to build trust and tell the story of your business. And like, to your point, a new industry and a new way of doing this and doing all that in 45 minutes. And it was, it was challenging. And so, you know, the long story short, we get to the day of the IPO and, you know, we are in this kind of quote unquote, disappointing situation where we're going to price below the expectation of where we were going to price. And it's interesting because like, you know, I think especially like, I mean, I've said the word kind of like underestimated, like it is, 
it, it's such a part of like me and the history of this company. And so like, it seems fitting that that's the way that we would go public too. Like, you know, we, we price below where we wanted to be. And, um, and, you know, there are definitely, there's a lot of short interest of people, you know, kind of short selling the stock and a lot of people who didn't believe. And, you know, the, the really interesting thing was like, rather than that being a depressing way to go public or kind of a sad way to go public, like it was weirdly so empowering. Like, I think just knowing like, knowing you have confidence in yourself and knowing that like, you know, it's almost like, you know, something others don't know. Right. It's like, I like, we can do this. Like the company is worth way more than this. Like this, this is something we can totally do of like being able to, um, you know, kind of beat expectations and being able to um, surprise people in a positive way. And so, you know, I think for the team too, like feeling a little bit like an underdog and feeling like we have something to prove. Like, I think all of that actually, ultimately like you know helped in terms of just like the culture of the company and just you know how committed people felt and and i think it also um helped us to be able to have that ipo day it's like really feeling like our own day like you know there's an element where i think that day can feel you know like it can feel like really crazy and like jam-packed and like you do this picture and then you do that and then you do this interview and whatever but like because like I kind of went into it with an attitude of like well I guess this wasn't going exactly as I had planned and so um so we really made it our own and um and it was really a meaningful day for me and my family and our team and like there's there's a few pictures out there actually of like me with my son who was at the time um I guess he was he was one, he was just over one. And, um, and like, you know, it wasn't planned and he was already there. And so like, I feel like if I was trying to be like all professional and like everything's going perfectly and this is my IPO day, I don't think I would have like felt comfortable like bringing him up on stage with me. And like, you know, I was giving mm -hmm. the speech and feeding him a bagel. And then, you know, when we went and like, you know, did the actual IPO kind of picture in the celebration, he was in there with me. And, um, and those are things that like, I, I felt comfortable doing, cause I kind of felt like this isn't going as planned anyway. And so like, I'm going to do it my way. And so, you know, I think all of that felt like really kind of empowering, but, um, but it certainly, you know, it was all the things and, um, and it, I think that, and I've learned a lot since going public. I think, you know, the public market investors are really smart. They ask really great questions and they look at the business in different ways. And so, um, you know, it's been a real journey certainly, but, um, but one that I've appreciated being on and I've really learned a lot being on. When I think those, to those pictures and that even that moment some of those pictures became iconic and really helped again stir the imagination and and empower others and so it, it just comes all the way back to 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 being your authentic self um and and let's just close the loop on how did it do how did your ipo do i think you're you're doing okay right yeah, I mean, you know, the now that we've been three years out, like you can look at the stock and you can zoom out six months and zoom out since the since it went public and you can yes. see like we've been super consistent, like we've been able to deliver results. And I think, you know, I think the public market is um is is showing an appreciation for that. And so, you know, I'm um, you know, at the end of the day, I'm I'm definitely not, you know, kind of every day motivated by the stock price, but, you know, I'm motivated by being able to, you know, deliver change to the industry, to be able to grow our business and, um, and do it in a really healthy way. And I think, you know, we've, I think we've, I've, I've learned a lot. And so I feel like, you know, we've been able to build trust with the public market investors and, um, and, you know, that I, I guess, you know, I have more confidence and understanding of like what it means to be a publicly traded company. Mm -hmm. How much, how much weight should 
should founders, especially those who are underrepresented and underestimated, how much weight should they put on having investors, especially on, uh, early on, at versus bootstrapping or sort of taking that into your own destiny? Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a good question. And, you know, if I'm honest, like my mind on it has, has changed probably a little bit. You know, I always thought, so one of the benefits of having like investors early is that you have validation. And like, to be clear, like I'm, you know, I, there are a lot of times, like, I mean, there are a lot of people who didn't believe in my business and I could still have my own confidence. So you need to have confidence and conviction regardless of what, what others say. But, you know, the being able to have others who have the same confidence and conviction and so much so that they're willing to give you a million dollars or whatever, um, like that, I think that's, it's helpful validation. And so I do think, you know, there's an element of that. Um, investor can help not all investors help a lot but you know my um like bill steve like you know my investors um maybe because i had fewer of them like you know they help quite a bit to be honest and um i they helped with recruiting like i have bill who's still on recruiting calls with me um and so you know there's definitely ways where you can leverage that experience um and then you know i think from um just like the question around bootstrapping or not like and this is where I feel like I've changed my mind the most because I was, you know, I, I was, and I still am proud that we are, that we are cash flow positive and capital efficient and, and all those things, which are good, which we were forced to do. But like, if you have the chance to raise money, like raising money can move, make that flywheel move faster. Like growth really is when you're in a huge industry as, as I am, as many are looking at, there many are looking at industries that are huge like growth is the key growth is the key to success in those mm -hmm. right like the faster the more market share you can grab faster like the more ahead you get of others like the more um you know the more you're able to kind of get that flywheel moving and so like you know if you have the ability to raise money i do think that like money that can fuel growth um is is super valuable and you know i feel you know, fortunate, good, whatever, like all the things are that like I, that we made it work on less than $50 million because I think back and I'm like, if there had been, you know, uh, I don't know, like a not underrepresented female who like went and raised a billion dollars to chase after my business, like it would have been hard, right? Like, yes, it would have been super hard to compete with somebody who was able to hire a thousand people like like that, who's able to pay everybody the most money, who's able to have the nicest office, who's able to afford to fail. Like if you have, if you raise the million, you know, if you raise a hundred million dollars, like you could, you could start tw two $20 million ventures that completely fail and go to zero and you'd still have more money than me, right? Like, mm -hmm. it's just like, um, just there, money buys you so much flexibility and so much space. And so, you know, I think that this is probably the place where my mind has changed the most of just like, I do really, you know, I, I do really see the benefit of, um, of using that capital to drive growth, of course, assuming that you already have a healthy business where the math really works. Yeah. Well, so I love that because I spend a lot of time on the podcast in my course, online course and in life telling people to hang on to as much equity as you can. And that also means bootstrapping as long as you can, et cetera. So I like this counter argument, even as an investor, that is my, that is my frontline argument. So I do like this, this very honest, transparent counter to that as someone who would know. And 
when you're looking at investments today, now you invest in other people. Let's say you're you're talking to a founder who is kind of at a crossroads. They're early on, but they see some sort of traction. They know that this is what they want to do for the next several years. When do they know whether or not to take the growth route and, and kind of double down on it? For instance, a company is in their seed stage and they have the opportunity to, to raise $10 million or, or wait another year and get more traction to make sure that you know, then they can raise 50. Where do you tell people when you, when you give advice? Ooh, that's a tricky one. I mean, to be really clear, just to come back to like the, you know, take money or, or not question, yes. like, um, like I actually generally agree with your advice in the early stages of just like boot figure it out, prove the business. Like, I think once you've gotten to the point where you've proven the business and then all you need is to throw fire on it, then I think that's when I think it's super important to take money. But I think yeah. like, you know, I think in those early, like when you don't quite know, like, does this really work or does this not like, does the math really work? Like in those early stages, I, I actually, I am a huge fan of bootstrapping, figuring it out. Um, and then I think also like there is an implicit contract. Like when you start taking money from um, venture investors, like, you know, venture investors, they want your business to be a billion dollar business or they want you to bust. And like everything in between is not that great, right? And that's, and I think that's a really valuable conversation to have with founders because, and to be clear, there are some venture investors that, you know, are comfortable with outcomes in the middle, but like there are, like, I think some of the mistakes that I see are like, there are some businesses that actually could be an awesome lifestyle business where like you could be running a 10, $20 million online business that like generates cash. And like, that's actually like a really good business, but it may never be a billion dollar business and you know there's there's some businesses like in the middle where it's like you know if you are forced to go public or you're forced to an exit because a vc needs a return like you know you might end up in a weird place and so um anyway just to be clear about the advice like i do you know it's not so binary as to being like always always take that's the money. right yeah, um, it's absolutely an individual situation and you have to really exactly. open up the books. Um, I, I think leading into kind of just how you look at investing in general would be helpful too here. Yeah. Because you're an angel investor now. Is it something that is a hobby? Is it something that is very structured? How do you look at that? I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's a hobby, I guess, but, um, but it's one, it's a way that I feel like I can actually have a meaningful difference. And so, you know, I, the lens that I really view it in is like, you know, of course, first and foremost, is the business interesting? Do I believe the business is going to work? And then, and then, I mean, I, I would say like, I, the more important lens, I mean, the thing that keeps me passionate and excited about it when, you know, no, none of us have time, right? And so like, the reason I do it is because, um, you know, it's, it's like, do I want this founder to succeed? And like, that's really the kind of part of it that makes it you know, a hobby is not quite the right word, but just like a passion project, mm -hmm. like for me, mm -hmm. because, um, you know, I just, I felt like I would, I would look around of like the other founders I would get grouped with. And like, you know, they're just, it, it just wasn't representative of like where I know talent sits and it wasn't representative of like what I know success to look like. And so, um, so to me, I think it's a way that I can really, the companies that I invest in, you know, like they, you know, actually somebody just DM me on Instagram being like, Hey, would love to grab time next week. Like I, you know, I think like my money is not as important as I think the impact that I can have and mentoring and helping and connecting them with 
others. And so, you know, for me, it's really just a way that I can feel like I can kind of help the next generation of founders and that I can have a part in kind of, you know, reinforcing, lifting up the founders that I I want to see successful. Um, and so, um, you know, so I think it's, but of course, these are also businesses that I deeply believe in and super talented founders. And, and also, I think ones that just better represent, um, like who we want to be successful in the future. That's really awesome. And it, it must feel, it must feel good. Uh, you know, this is a podcast around, about honesty and transparency. It just must feel good to be in a position that you can make those decisions. And, and I, I, I wonder if you, if you thought at 24 that you would be in this position, um, starting. Oh, never. <laughs> I just, and, and this is part of like why what you do and what I do is so important. Like at 24, like it was not, you know, like it wasn't even on my radar that this could be my path. And, um, you know, I think I just, it, it, it's just like so fascinating too, because even when I started Stitch Fix, like, like I didn't, write a business plan and was like, oh, and then, you know, seven years later, I'm going to go public. Like, I, I didn't even know that that was like, I, I just didn't even have the like, I just didn't even have the capability to dream big enough. And, um, and, you know, I think there are so many people who are, who are fed big dreams and shown big dreams and they see, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos and they see these people that they aspire to be like. And like, I just, I'm not, it just wasn't as available to me. And so I just think it's so that if you can't see it, you can't be it. Like, it's so important to, um, and that's, I think, part of why I'm just so like uplifted by, um, by last week and seeing Kamala talk and like my son's being so excited about her and just like, you know, just, I, I think being able to show and be examples and being able to, for like people to dream like, oh, someday that could be me. Like, mm. you know, it just, it all starts with a dream. And I'm so lucky that I got here, even though I didn't even realize that dream when I was 24, like I didn't even realize that for myself until, you know, I was kind of well into this. And so um, anyway, the long answer to your question, I guess, is like at 24, I had no idea that this was even a possibility for me, much less did I imagine this for myself. When speaking of representation, as we start to wind down, speaking of representation, who do you think you represent and who do you want to make sure is being seen by you? Yeah, I mean, vice it's, versa? oh, it's such a good question. Um, you know, I, like I'm biracial. My mom is an immigrant. My mom is from Japan. Um, and, and it's really fascinating of just like, you know, when I hear from people on Instagram who are like, I see myself in you, it's like very interesting because I think there's different parts of my background that that can relate to. Like I even hear from, I talk very publicly about how I really never thought I'd be an entrepreneur. Like I was not, I'm, I, I would not you know, characterize myself as a super risky person. Like, mm. you know, I probably always did safer things. And, um, and, you know, there are people who resonate with that. And I think that's an element of diversity that's underrepresented in entrepreneurship. Like people think that entrepreneur have, uh, entrepreneurs have to be these like crazy Elon Musk, I'm going to go to the moon or Mars someday kind of people. Mm -hmm. And like, you can be an entrepreneur and, you know, be like, I was probably more bookish. Like I, you know, I really like Excel. Like, you know, I was <laughs> <laughs> I was definitely like a different flavor of on entrepreneur that I think people can relate to. Um, and then I think, of course, of course, being a woman, being a mom, um, you know, I had no 
I had no idea that that photo would be as meaningful and as widely distributed of the one of me holding my son at the IPO. And, you know, he was one, like I was stepping out of S1 drafting meetings to pump. And like, you know, it was, I think just like being able to see a woman who like I had, you know, I've had two kids in the time that, you know, that I've run Stitch Fix and one of them was right before the IPO and the other one was um, kind of right after the IPO actually, um, or I guess a, a year and a half or two years after, a year and a half after the IPO. Um, and so, you know, I think there's like people who, you know, people who want to have a family and to be able to take a full parental leave and to be able to feel like they're still, you know, like excelling in their career. Like, you know, I think there are so many elements of my experience that people can resonate with. Um, and, and at the same time, like, I'm such a small fraction of all of the other experiences that are super underrepresented when you look around and look at who public company CEOs are. And so, um, you know, I think, anyway, I, I really am excited for, for the future where, you know, you're gonna be having guest after guest on your podcast of, um, of people that didn't necessarily look like the public company CEOs of the past. Um, but, you know, we're still, we're still early in that fight and still early in that journey. Yes. Yes. And I think you've proven that it's worth the wait, you know, <laughs> it's, <laughs> so uh, I, I really appreciate your time and I want to make sure that I leave space for anything that you uh, that I missed that you may have wanted to talk about, um, because I, I think we've just covered so much. and I think it's, uh, it's going to be extremely helpful to a lot of people. Oh, no, thank you so much for having me, Arlen. I mean, you've been this has been a super, um, I don't know, thoughtful conversation a thought-provoking one so I really um you're I, I really appreciate um being on the show and appreciate your having me thank you to this episode so i would love to keep up with you online you can find me at arlen was here on instagram and on twitter that's a-r-l-a-n was here i cannot wait to continue this conversation with you your first million is produced by anna eichenauer executive producer arlen hamilton associate producer chacho valadez